Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Everything Economics. I'm your host, Talia Murdoch, and I would like to begin by acknowledging that we are fortunate to be able to gather on the territory of the Coast Salish people, where this podcast is recorded. This week, I got to talk to Rob Selkowitz, who also contributed to the Superheroes in Economics book that I have spoken to a few authors from already. He wrote about Alan Moore and the importance of creating economically realistic worlds within comics. So I do hope you enjoy the interview. It was great fun recording it, and I honestly can't wait to pick up an Alan Moore comic sometime soon. All right, I'm going to start recording. Catch my breath. I was running up the running up the stairs to. Uh, uh, I was changing a light bulb and I heard the phone ring. Oh no, that's terrible timing. I hope you made it down the ladder safely. Yes. Cool. Yes, I did. Um, yeah, so thanks so much for agreeing to come on. This has been a bunch of fun for me, getting to talk to people who write about superheroes as opposed to reading about monetary policy or the devastating state of climate change and economics. So <laughs> thanks for coming on. My, my pleasure. Happy, uh, happy to talk about anything other than those things. Yeah, it's always nice and refreshing. Okay, so today I am talking to Rob Selkowitz. He is a business writer, an author of several books, which I will link on cavegoblins.com for you to have a look at. He's also in the faculty on University of Washington of Graduate Communications. So welcome to the show, Rob. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you contributed to the book who I've talked to a couple of authors now, Superheroes and Economics. You mentioned when we were booking this interview that you weren't an economist. So I want to ask you how you first became interested in the subject matter. And then second, how did your contribution to this book come about? Well, I'm mostly a writer about the business of comics, and I have a pretty good footprint in that world. So I got an email about a year and a half ago from uh, Brian O'Rourke, um, who was the editor of the publication? He was soliciting pieces for it. He asked me if I was if I was interested in doing something for it, because I'm not an academic and I'm not in the economics of academic publishing, let's say, and that if, if, if I don't publish, I will not perish. Uh, I had to be kind of talked into, you know, participating, I guess, because it was sort of a, a labor of love. He said you can do whatever topic interests you, and he said we'll make you a co-editor on the book. Um, so that way, if there are any proceeds after all is said and done, that I would uh, participate in that, which was very nice of him. Um, so I ended up actually being a co-editor, and then about halfway through the process, um, Brian was pretty much shepherding all of that and the contributors. But at, at a certain point, I did take an active hand in the editing of the other material and the writing of the introduction and things like that. Cool. So you just told me that you contribute to Forbes. So how how did con- how did working on this book where it's probably a bit more in-depth. How does that compare to just your general writing for Forbes magazine? So the gig from Forbes came about because the previous book that I had done in 2012 was called Comic-Con and the Business of Pop Culture. And so it was about the annual gathering in San Diego, San Diego Comic-Con, and how the entire world of the entertainment, marketing, uh, comics, publishing, technology, all of these different industries strangely end up at this very strange uh, consumer trade show business conference. It's a, it's, a, it's a wild place. Anyway, I wrote this book with the idea that I would, because I was a business writer who's also interested in comics, and that that would be a, uh, uh, 
you know, kind of an interesting idea for a business book. So I did the business book, and then suddenly I'm the guy who wrote a book about Comic-Con from the business perspective. So I get a call from Forbes, and they, they have me do, um, uh, you know, I write five, five to seven pieces a month for them. So that's a, that's a regular gig. I also, like my real world job is I'm a, a strategy consultant, so I work with private companies trying to engage fans and, and things like that. So I have a lot of different hats that I wear. Cool. Okay. So what drew you to want to explore superhero universes in the first place? I mean, you've already mentioned that you write about the business of comics. Superheroes are different than the comic because they're the character within the universe. What sort of got you motivated to go into that side of things? So so Brian said you could could write about any topic that you wanted. So I started thinking about, in some of the other work that I do as a strategic planner, we use this methodology called scenario planning, which is sort of basically using storytelling to help businesses understand what's coming next in the future. And even though I'm not an economist, I'm familiar that there are modeling techniques that economists use. And I thought there was some kind of an analog between this idea of of creating this logically plausible future scenario or set of worlds that you could live in and, uh, and the, the exercises that economists do to try and model different um, sets of conditions given different you know, initial variables and things like that. And the work that the comics writer Alan Moore did in the beginning of the 1980s was so rigorous in how he built the worlds in which his stories took place but I thought, let me look at Alan Moore through the lens of scenario planning and see if I can find something useful to say about Alan Moore and the, uh, you know, the sort of building of economic models for storytelling purposes and the ways that he's making that, you know, his stories more true to life because there is an element of economic realism that had not been present in comics before. I thought this, nobody, Alan Moore is the subject of a lot of study in, in the comic studies field. He's a very uh, well-known and you know, acclaimed guy. Um, but as far as I could tell, nobody else had ever taken this particular attack on his work. And I thought, this is something I was going to write anyway, or that I was thinking about. This would be a good opportunity to, to do that. So I submitted the proposal, Ryan said, that sounds great. And even though it ends up being slightly out of step with some of the other contributions in the book, um, I think it kind of sets the table for, you know, this idea that comic worlds are a good analog to the kind of intellectual exercises that economists go through to try and think through these kind of problems. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. I think there's quite a lot of crossover by the sounds of it with what you do Um and what an economist would do if you were just not an academic, but just working your, you know, day to day, perhaps government job, you're an analyst or something. It's just looking at what you have at hand, trying to guess what those things are going to do in the future, and then making a plan for it. Maybe there's some fancier modeling done with economics, but most of the time a computer does that anyway. Um, well, yeah, OK. You continue. Oh, I was going to say, in case your readers are not familiar with with who I'm talking about, Alan Moore is probably best known for doing the graphic novel Watchmen, which was made into a movie and, and all of that stuff. But it's a widely considered to be uh, one of the most uh, um, intense and literary and accomplished 
graphic novels specifically dealing with superheroes and stuff like that. But he, in that book, he really created this idea of what what it would be like if superheroes were in the real world with real political consequences, with um, real personal lives and and psychological hang-ups and sexual issues and things like that. And so he did this in the mid-'80s. He also did a bunch of other really interesting work. Um, He did a thing called V for Vendetta, which was one of his earlier uh, pieces, which was, so he's British. And he did this in the early 80s as a reaction to the rise of Margaret Thatcher and, and the style of economics, basically, that she brought to the UK at that time. And he, he's done a bunch of really interesting work in the medium. So um, this is a, as I said, he's a very heavily analyzed creator in the comics world. And people find all kinds of things to say about him, but, I don't, but there was never anything said uh, about his uh, sort of use of economics to construct these realities. So what did you find to say about that? So there's actually three things to say about that. From uh, So one of the most interesting parts about Alan Moore is that his background, so he's a, he was born and raised in, in the Midlands in, in the UK in a sort of industrial area from a very working class background. And he found himself working in the US comics industry in the, in the early 80s. Almost everybody else that was working in the in the comics business, writing superhero stories and stuff like that, around that time, were kids who had grown up, you know, in the post-war period in the U.S. in very affluent circumstances, and economic realism and the the issues that real people faced in just having to pay the bills and and that sort of thing was the furthest thing from their mind. Here's Alan Moore from this very working class background, very class conscious, very left wing, comes out of the underground comics tradition, which is even more left-wing and political. And so he brings a perspective to his storytelling and his characterizations that was unique in the American superhero comics industry at that point. So he comes in with this very fresh voice and starts asking these questions and starts poking at these storytelling issues that nobody else in the business was was bothering with. Um, in partly because you know there was still this sort of idea that comics were for kids and kids didn't really care about this kind of thing, but in fact, it's, you know, comics themselves were trying to become more sophisticated and literary, but few other people came to it with as much of a uh, mindset toward the linkages between economics and politics and power relationships and psychology and stuff like that as Alan Moore had. So I thought, let me explore that because that by itself is pretty cool. Then I wanted to look at this issue of the the way that he constructed these worlds in a he didn't use scenario planning methodology per se as far as I could tell and he didn't use any kind of rigorous discipline about it but he approached it in the same way that that an economist or a business analyst would by saying here's the initial condition so what does that tell us about other things that might be peripheral to the main story that I'm trying to tell and consequently, when you read his stuff and you look in the, he because he describes, he not only writes the dialogue and the plots, but he also describes the the action in every panel very, very meticulously with a great deal of detail. And so a lot of the details that he puts in the background reflect a incredibly uh, rigorous approach to world building and logic around it. I thought, okay, that's worth talking about too. And then the third part that I thought was interesting is his work in moving the storytelling forward to a more real place laid the groundwork for us being able to have this whole entertainment economy 
based on superhero movies right now because the whole premise of the superhero movies is you have this shared world and all these different superheroes, you know, the Avengers and everything. Um, there are all of these different stories that are being told in different parts of this world. Well, for, the, for us as an audience to buy that, the world that they live in has to have this sort of floor level of consistency. You can't be looking at that and constantly questioning, wait a minute, why, if, if this is true, then, then why is this other stuff happening? You, know, you don't want the audience to be distracted by inconsistencies in the storytelling. And so Moore was the, one of the first people to really clean up those kind of plot problems and create worlds that would carry weight. So that, you know, 20, 30 years later, when we start moving into this transmedia environment where there's all these different, you know, movie franchises and stuff like that, you've got a nice solid foundation of a shared universe that, that you can build on. He kind of showed the way for that. So those three things all are kind of a bank shot, you know, toward, toward economics, let's say, but they're, they're all interesting economic things about Alan Moore that are worth talking about. Yeah, awesome. I, I, I knew who Alan Moore was, but I'd never read any of his work, and I still haven't. I think the main reason I know who he is is I've just started, or I'm just currently reading The Invisible, so he's always just kind of been Grant Morrison's other wizard rival in the comic world yeah um and I I really enjoy Grant Morrison's work but I listened to a few podcasts and read a bit about him doing research for this episode today and yeah just The Watchmen is definitely the next thing on the list to read it's so interesting I didn't even really know this whole idea that comics used to just be for kids and then he just brought this whole element of of truth and reality to it that no one had done before and if he hadn't done yeah, that, I we mean, probably I, wouldn't have this huge successful industry that we do because it would just be stories for kids. Yeah, and he's he's kind of a prickly character. I mean, you know, unlike unlike the late Stan Lee, who was very you know sort of public facing and real ambassador for the medium and stuff like that. Um, you know, Moore was never comfortable with that, and he's had periodic you know fights with his publisher and stuff like that. So even though everybody loves the stuff that he does he's a difficult you know he's alive and well he's, he just turned 65 the other day so he's you know he's fine he's creatively uh fruitful and stuff like that but he does less in the comics industry than than he might do because of a bunch of external issues um but somebody like grant morrison i think and neil gaiman is another one who's a direct you know uh descendant of the you know they were contemporaries i mean they were only alan moore is maybe a few years older than those guys but they came in very much following the innovations that that Moore had laid down, and definitely pushed the pushed the comics in a in a different direction as well. Yeah, absolutely. He should take it as a compliment, but I'm not inside his head. So, so do you ever do you get into any of the stories at all in your in your chapter and in your analysis, or is it mostly just about Alan Moore himself as a writer? No, not at all. So, so I look at three of his works. So um, one of them that I had talked about was his V for Vendetta, um, which is really the, the first. He had done some sort of, you know, underground stuff and some things for independent press, and he had written a popular strip in, in the U.K. Uh, called uh, 2000 A.D. So he, he, had, he had been doing some professional work, but he starts work on this thing, V for Vendetta, in 1982, I think. And it's... It's his reaction to the Thatcher movement. And 
in it, there's a uh, so it's set in a in a future where basically uh, England is run by fascists, and there's V is this freedom fighter, the authorities call him a terrorist, who is opposed to the fascist regime and is creating all of this mischief and violence and stuff like that to try and overthrow the government. And he runs around in a, in a Guy Fawkes mask, which is very kind of weird and disconcerting looking. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a political thriller. And the interesting economic angle of that is that more from his background is really aggrieved at what's going on with the conservative economic policies in England. And he makes this connection that if the government is going to come in and really strip the livelihood and the political power and the economic security away from these vast swaths of people to privilege this new rising class that, that Thatcher is trying to advance, you can't have that kind of economic disruption without also political disruption also. So he sees the logical endpoint of, of these policies is the government becoming more authoritarian and the, the economic inequality that's inherent in that becoming part of the law and part of the police state. So that's that's his sort of thinking about how he connects the the economic issues that are going on right in front of his eyes to this sort of uh, background of this political thriller. And again, you know, it's not like um, super sophisticated political economic thinking for an academic, but in the world of adventure genre superhero comics, it is way, you know, beyond what, what anybody had seen before. So he serializes this story for um, for a few years in this in this magazine, and it finally, by the time it finally gets over to the United States, it, uh, you know, it's 1988 and Thatcher's about done, and a lot of the the real vitriol and urgency of it doesn't come across to uh, American readers. But nevertheless, it's a, it's a very potent and uh, economically charged statement. So I look at that one and discuss that in that context. Then the, simultaneously, while he's doing this, he's doing another series called Miracle Man, which is basically this corny old superhero strip that had been popular in England in the 1950s when Moore was a kid. And the the publisher acquired the rights to this character. He thought he did. There was a there was a whole issue around that. But anyway, they they decide to bring back this character in a new take on this old character, and they want to update the character to make it relevant and interesting and more denser stories for a more mature audience. So they take this old character and they they refresh him. And the character's his name is called, goes by Marvel Man in the UK. Uh, they, cha- they changed it to Miracle Man when they brought it over here so it would not get in trouble with Marvel Comics. And the, the interesting thing is, so, so he's this very powerful character. He's like Superman. And he comes back to Earth. And rather than just chasing criminals and foiling bank robbers and fighting with a supervillain and stuff like that, he looks around and he says, boy, this place is really messed up at a fundamental level. And he starts fixing big problems like economic distribution and inequality and environment and and all of this stuff and he starts having this really profound impact on the world around him up until then nobody who had been dealing with superhero characters had ever extended the premise of the story to that degree 
And when you start asking those kind of questions, like if there is a an omnipotent character who just appears, you know, and starts doing this stuff, what does that do to ordinary people's lives? How does that disrupt politics? How does it disrupt economics? And then at the at the end of the run that Moore does, fifteen or sixteen issues, basically Miracle Man decides he's just going to that human beings can't be trusted with Earth anymore, and they take over. He decides to take over the the government. And he gives this whole manifesto of what his economic program is going to be now that there's no more scarcity, now that he's going to take care of meeting everybody's basic resource needs. And it's basically this two-page manifesto of this sort of utopian economic, which, again, nobody, nobody in comics had ever thought through this stuff to such a degree. So I talk about that and just the... You know, it's imperfect from a theoretical standpoint. I think most academic economists would look at that and kind of chuckle to themselves. But, you know, it's not, you know, when you, it's like having a dog singing opera. It's not, you know, you don't expect a dog to sing well. Just the fact that he's singing at all is interesting. And sure. I don't mean to disparage Alan Moore. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of good thoughts in what he's doing. It's not to be compared with a, you know, like with an actual ec- economic treatise. But in the pages of the superhero comic, it's very advanced stuff. Interesting. I'm definitely going to have to pick that one up too. Um, yeah. and, and then the, and the last one I look at is Watchmen, which was, it addresses some other issues that we've already discussed. Yeah, cool. I think going back to the idea of a two-page manifesto and that's how he's going to sort of run their country or whatever or the world. So something I always feel as just a, just a undergrad who's just got a keen interest in the topic but not enough to actually be an academic is – current policies and legislation all just gets way too complicated and it needs to just be broken down into into simple economics so maybe two pages is too short but who knows he could be onto something there well he you know he builds up to it and it's and it's clear that he's really thought it through in a way that nobody else has and the the interesting thing is that once he did that um he's most acclaimed more is most acclaimed for Watchmen and, and some other things that he did later in this Miracle Man because it had kind of distribution issues in the United States. Many American, even comic scholars, have not read it because it's just hard to find. Um, but when you read it, like a lot of the stuff that Grant Morrison and uh, a bunch of other writers sort of take this approach, Warren Ellis is another one who did a thing called The Authority later, or Kurt Busiek's Astro City, like there's a bunch of, there's a whole school almost of, of comics, superhero comics, that take this same approach after Moore had done this. And they're like, okay, what is the, what does the real world look like with superheroes in it? And let's, let's try and make that real. Before he did these stories, nobody had ever done this. And parenthetically, he leaves off. He, he finished, That's his last issue, and he decides, I'm done with this character. I'm going to walk away from it. Well, the publisher still had to do it. They had to find some guy to write it, and they picked this poor kid off the street. He had not, uh, hadn't written any comics before, and his first writing assignment is to follow Alan Moore on this earth-shattering, stupendous story. This was Neil Gaiman. This was his first work. So he, he, he went okay. right into the deep end and started following, uh, started following Alan Moore on that, on that book. That is the deep end. <laughs> it would be like getting told that you had to finish Game of Thrones and you'd never written a book in your life. Like, exactly. <laughs> it's, uh, it's definitely, uh, definitely starting, uh, going 
right into the right into the deep end. Luckily, um, he's a, also a generational talent, and he was up to the task. Although um, I prefer Moore's issues of Miracle Man. Awesome. Um, so, is do you want to talk about anything else within the book, or just your experience as a whole, or any thoughts you have about the other chapters you helped edit? Yeah. So I thought everybody's approach to this stuff. I, like for one thing, I think Brian's uh, overall idea for the book, which is to create more interesting and relatable examples concepts is was really interesting like i think that as a you know if i were a graduate that was trying to take economics i would think that would be really cool and then some of the authors the way that they sort of work through the examples um like i particularly like the one where they're looking at black panther's kingdom uh, as an example, like comparing and contrasting it to actual African economic development and why, you know, landlocked countries, you know, develop certain political structures and stuff like that. It's like just full of great ideas. And it's like, wow, I wouldn't have thought of that. Um, I know a little bit about, you know, economic development stuff. Like that's, that's a little bit more in my field of study. And I just thought, this is a great way to introduce a subject like that. I, I thought also the, um, just the idea that uh, Captain America is, is frozen in ice for 80 years, how's his portfolio doing? As a way to you know sort of think about economic growth and compound interest and, and all of these other economic uh, topics. There's a lot of really there's a lot of really clever, funny, interesting stuff in, in the book that I think really separates it out from other kind of academic treatises and essays and stuff like that. I hope it has a uh, I hope it has a long life in the economic curriculum. Yeah, it's definitely a lot more fun, that's for sure, and relevant. Like, if that, I may it, ask, who else, who, else, who else have you spoken to? Um, I've spoken to uh, Brian, obviously. He was the first person I spoke to. I've spoken to John Swinton, so I talked to him last week, and I put that episode out today, so we talked about Batman and the Shadow. And then okay. next week I've got John other John Robinson I believe I think we're talking about I think he might have done Captain America or something like that oh okay yeah so oh yeah he did, he did the Captain America one yeah that was yeah that was yeah so that would be good it was it was really it was really weird having the conversation last week with John Swinton because it was the day that Stanley died we're just here talking oh, gosh, about yes talking about comic books and stuff it was yeah felt like quite a moment to me this is, this is interesting because there has not been an american comic industry without stan lee in it until this week yeah i know apparently he's filmed like 20 cameos or something so i really wonder yeah, how how they'll put them in though like is there would they just do it or do you have to be a bit tasteful about it i guess it doesn't really matter i don't know it's uh yeah, I mean, we'll be we'll be dealing with the ghost of Stan for for many. many yeah, years. he'll definitely become uh, a bit of a ghost in the machine, I think. One one thing one one interesting part of my experience with the book is that um, I was, I think, more of the comic nerd in the group. Like uh, that that when I do other academic stuff, it's more in the comic studies and comics as communication, and I'm a little bit more into the texts and into the medium as a medium and not just like as a metaphor for something else. Um, so I was, I was kind of the, the cop that would go through and say, well, you know, like, in, this is true in the comics, but, it, you know, like, here you're, you're talking about the movies and that's different. And, you know, like, so I was, I was trying to be, uh, trying to be 
impose a little bit of, of consistency on it. Of course, that was totally not the point, but it was just uh, once a nerd, always a nerd. You, you see that stuff, you just have to. Hey, and that's important. <laughs> You've got to fact check these things. It's a pretty serious fandom. It is, and it's like, and that's the kind of thing. It's like, it's like, ah, if you don't know, you know, like what happened in Iron Man number fifty-five, then I'm not going to pay attention to anything else you have to exactly. say. Exactly. You know, so you know, uh, um, but you know, obviously these these guys are the economics experts, but so it was, uh, it was kind of fun to read through it, and I would send these little notes to Brian, and say, you know, he might want to say this, this, you know, it was a, it was that kind of a, that kind of a thing. Nice. Sounds fun. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. And, uh, yeah, drop me a line and let me know when this uh, drops. And I yeah, I will. Last out to my network. Awesome. Thanks again, Rob. Right, okay, take care. Bye. All right, bye. So that was Rob Selkowitz talking about Alan Moore, who seems just as relevant today as when he first started opposing the Thatcher regime. I hope you enjoyed it. It was really interesting to discuss that topic with Rob. I will be linking all of his social media and website and relevant novels on the Cave Goblins website, so do go and check that out. Be sure to go on iTunes to rate and review the show, as this is the easiest way to support the show and also our network. We have not just one, but two new shows on the network now, so please go over to our website and check out Comedy Zeitgeist, as always, DMs of Vancouver, and Podcast vs. Podcast. They are awesome shows with great hosts, and we're really happy to have them on board. Set everything to auto-download. And as always, thank you so much for listening. I have been Talia Murdoch, and this is Everything Economics. Doug Vandalay here for Comedy Zeitgeist on the Cave Goblin Network. Each week, I sit down with a comedian to talk about their career and their comedic influences. Learn about your favourite comedians talking about their favourite comedians. That's Comedy Zeitgeist on the Cave Goblin Network. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.